The series that we're starting tonight had its birth from a question that Jerry asked me to explain uh, from the larger catechism. And as I started looking at the larger catechism, uh, well, in order to understand this question, we have to expand at least for the question before and the question after. And, you know, it got bigger than the, the simple question. Now, the average Presbyterian will have read a paragraph or two of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They may even have memorized a question or two of the shorter catechism, at least the first one. Uh, it just, my heart just jumped for joy as we were interviewing families on Sunday for membership and would ask a question and the kid would just, duh, and give us a catechism answer. Like, don't you know, why are you asking me? Don't you know the catechism? That, that, that felt like, uh, so, uh, you know, the average person here may have learned a question to the shorter catechism. The larger catechism, however, remains a mystery, even to the average Presbyterian minister. Yet, the larger catechism contains a wealth of theological and practical teaching. Uh, uh, I, we've met him, he's preached here before, he's gone to be with the Lord now. Uh, there was a man by the name of George Scipioni. he was a biblical counselor, and he masterfully used a document that we might think, oh man, that's an you know, ancient document from the 1600s in counseling in a very helpful way, especially the part of the larger catechism that deals with the Ten Commandments. So a very helpful document. So for the next few weeks, Lord willing, not next week because next week is, uh, we have Good Friday service, so we have no Wednesday evening service. So by the next Wednesday, few Wednesdays, we're going to use the larger catechism to lead us in a study on the Lord's Supper, which was the actual question that uh, uh, Jerry uh, asked about. We're going to consider questions 162 to 164, and then we're going to consider questions 168 to 177. Unfortunately, the larger catechism is not on our hymnals, only the shorter uh, catechism. So even, no, even our, our materials don't do justice to the larger catechism, it doesn't get equal time uh, uh, as the shorter catechism. And as we begin, just a little background on the larger catechism, very, just very little, so that we just have a taste for what's going on. After a lot of fighting, you know, it's never, I don't know if you know that, but Scottish people like fighting. Right? Uh, uh, so after a lot of fighting, England and Scotland signed the Solemn League and Covenant and uh, if you're in the lectures Friday night, you've heard about that. And they signed that in 1643, which said that both countries together shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms, and that would be England, Scotland, and Ireland, yes. Which Dr. Van Dixhorn says more, it was more like a village than a kingdom, uh, to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship and catechizing, and we and our posterity after us as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. So uh, that Charles I was the king of England, and uh, he just could not beat the Scots. The Scots, he 
could not keep parliament open long enough to fund the war because they always wanted to change the church, so they would close the parliament. So he had to come to some sort of agreement with Scotland to stop the war, and that's what uh, had, was the result. And when the Westminster Assembly was established by the English parliament, it took the responsibility of preparing a catechism very seriously based on this league, this covenant, I should say, that English, England and Scotland had made with one another. There were years of debate about the catechisms till in 1647, because they were going to write one catechism for everybody. But in 1647, the assembly decided to write two catechisms. The, biggest, the big discussion was that they wanted a catechism that was accessible to everybody, but also contained good theological teaching, longer theological teaching, and they couldn't come with their agreement to the question. So finally they decided to do two, two catechisms, and this is the motion that was made on the floor, that the committee for the catechism do prepare a draft, it's not misspelled, it's just how it is, of two catechisms, one more large, again, it's not just the Brazilian talking here, that's how it's written, one more large, and another more brief, in which they are to have an eye to the confession of faith and to the matter of the catechism already begun. And shortly after that, they actually produced the larger catechism for approval of parliament. Now, the English parliament never adopted the confession or the catechisms. But the Scotland church, the Scottish church in 1648, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland adopted the larger catechism and called it a directory for catechizing such as have made some proficiency in the knowledge of the grounds of religion. So it's, it's not for the rookie, they said, the larger catechism, for the, those that are uh, a little more mature in their theological um, knowledge. So that's just a brief background introduction to the larger catechism. What we're going to be looking to tonight, Lord willing, is this question, question 62, with 162, which asks, what is a sacrament? So that, remember I told you I had to kind of move back to get to a point where we can actually start and have all the bases covered. So start here, what is a sacrament? And the catechism says, a sacrament is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion with one another, and to distinguish them from those that are without. So we're going to, for the next few minutes, walk through this, this question to help us understand what a sacrament is, because the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. So that's why we are starting here. We'll start with the word sacrament. So where do we find that word? What passages in the the Bible do we find that word? It's a trick question. The word itself, the term sacrament, is not found in the Bible. And in that, it is in good company. The word trinity, the word theology, the word incarnation are not in the Bible either, as far as the, the, the term itself, these words were coined to express Christian teaching, 
to summarize Christian teaching. But the, the, the teaching that the word sacrament represents, even though the word's not found in the New Testament, the teaching is present throughout the scriptures. Now, some people struggle using terms that are not found in the Bible to label truths that are in the Bible. Somehow, some people wanted to only use Bibles that are in, uh, words that are in the, in the concordance to explain things. To them, Calvin says, we must not, bound to, we must not be bound to a confession woven so, and sown superstitiously with biblical words. That is, words that are found in the Bible. It's okay to use other words than the words that are in the Bible to explain what the Bible teaches. Are you with me on that? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Okay. We can use extra biblical words to explain biblical teaching more precisely. Uh, G.I. Williamson, who wrote a study on the confession, says, provided the meaning of the term be clear in Scripture, nothing more is required. So we don't have to be superstitious. It's a great benefit to have a standard theological vocabulary. Uh, years, a few years ago, it was actually start around 2002, there's this movement in the Reformed Church called the Federal Vision. It's not a, quite a, a unified movement, but there's certain tenets that, um, that fall into that. It's not a good thing. It's not a good movement. They're, they're teaching some things that uh, could be uh, considered damnable. But they refuse to use standard theological vocabulary. They refuse to be precise. And it's, precision is important. Our God is, is about, it likes precision. Um, the, uh, the Puritans who gave us the confessions and the catechisms call themselves precisionists. That was their, their title for themselves, precisionists, um, because they thought it was important to be precise. Now, what's the, what does the word come from? Why do we use that word? Even, no. Well, the, this comes from a Latin word, sacramentum, which means sacred thing. And the medieval church attached this term to the Lord's Supper and baptism because the Latin translation of the Bible did that. Even though it doesn't mean sac- doesn't mean ordinance, doesn't mean Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, they used this word to translate the word mystery. So, which is never used for the Lord's Supper and never used for, the, for baptism. But it became the standard term. It's as good as any. So sacrament. When we talk about sacrament, we're talking about baptism. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. Any questions before we continue? All right, so just a running commentary on the questions 162 that we read earlier. First, it says that the sacraments are holy ordinances. So things are being set aside instituted by Christ in his church, that is, in and for the visible body of the covenant people of God. That's what the, how the question begins. And the Bible does teach that. For example, in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 10, God tells Abraham, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So here Abraham established a covenant, and then he, a few verses later he refers to that covenant in verse 10. He says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Is that really the whole covenant? 
No, that's the answer. It's not. You read, there's a land component. There is a, the, the core of the covenant is the promise that God is going to be a, their God and they will be His people. Another promise is that He's going to be their God and the God of their children. Uh, the, as I said, is a land promise and so on. But the circumcision, which was a sacrament, was so attached to what He was saying. And it was given to the, the people of God and to the people of God alone. And that's what we see. The sacrament is something that's given to the people of God. Not to, and as we'll see a little later more, not to the unbeliever. You see that too in Exodus 12, where the Passover is established. There we, we see that God is establishing that particular sacrament for His people. For the church in the Old Testament. Christ says something similar while establishing the New Covenant in, uh, that, in the Last Supper, where he says, as they were, eat, were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. So it's specific to a people, is given to the Church of Jesus Christ. The sacraments are given to uh, the church, and not to other people, not to people outside of the church. Any, any questions on that? Does it seem straightforward to you? Because history has not been straightforward to people. Right? Even really good theologians otherwise would, would not understand this. So. All right, so we'll continue. The question also says that the sacraments are intended to signify, seal, and exhibit the benefits of Christ's work of redemption. In Romans 4.11, Paul says, he received, uh, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness. So you have the sign and seal here in one verse. A seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. In God's wisdom, uh, Abraham was not circumcised until after he exhibited faith. So the circumcision didn't cause faith. The circumcision didn't give him faith. Circumcision was a sign that he had faith. The sacrament of circumcision was a sign that he had faith. And the apostle also says something similar of the Lord's Supper, where he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup of the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do oft, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It was pointing to Christ. That's what a sign is. It's pointing to Christ, and, and that's what our question says, that a sacrament is a sign. And a sign makes somebody something else known. I uh, don't know that you've ever driven by a, a sign that said sign on it, and with arrows pointed to itself. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't function. There's no function. So a sign is always something pointing to something else. For example... Remember when Moses comes before God, he comes before the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, 
God reveals himself to, to, to Moses. And then Moses says, uh, how will they know? How will they know that you sent me? You sent me. Remember what God tells Moses? What is it? What happens there in Exodus 4? As Moses asks God, how will the people know that I'm coming from you, that you're sending me? That's a little later. There, there's a sign that he gives Moses. Nope, that's a, a much later. <laughs> After he comes down, that's when he comes down from the Ten Commandments. I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> we we kind of had to figure that one out. Just about, yes, I'm glad. Yeah. Now, so remember, God says, let me see your rod, throw your rod down. God becomes a snake, and then says, pick it up by the tail, and picks and becomes a rod again. And then says, put your hand in, the, in your coat, and bigs out his lap, leprous, and then put it back, and it's gone. And he says, God says, by the, this first and latter sign, they will know. So what, what did the rod do? The rod pointed to the fact that God had sent Moses. So it's a sign, because it's not... The thing was, oh, wow, look, a snake. The thing that was designed to say, wow, this man came from God. That's what the rod and the snake were a sign there. Uh, a New Testament talks about the tribulation in Matthew 24 being a sign of the imminent coming of Christ there as well. Abraham's circumcision, as we saw just a moment ago, made known the righteousness of faith he had before being circumcised. It was a sign pointing to something else. So to say that a sacrament is a sign is to say that it makes a declaration about something other than the sacrament itself. Again, remember, if you have a sign that just says sign and points to itself, it's doing absolutely nothing. Right? Because signs are designed to be showing something else. And that's what the sacraments do. That's what the Lord's Supper does. A sacrament doesn't point to itself. So a sacrament must not be the emphasis. Rather, the emphasis is on what it points to. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, our, our focus should not just be in, oh, I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper, or I'm eating the bread, or I'm drinking the wine, but in the one that the bread and the wine are pointing to, Christ. That's what the bread and the wine are designed to do, to point us to Christ. So, so if all that we see when we partake of the Lord's Supper is bread and wine, then it's like the sign with the word sign pointing to itself. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's something else. Does that make sense? And when the sacrament becomes the focus of worship... And it becomes the sign with the word sign pointing to itself. And that's what the Roman Catholic Church does. The sacrament becomes the thing, not the one that the sacrament points to. Questions on that? All right, the question also says the sacrament is a seal. I think the sign is easier and more common because we don't live in in the time where people would put their seals on, on things, so we can't understand the sign. The seal might be a little more, diff- a little more complicated, but a, a seal authenticates or confirms that the thing to which it is attached. Have you ever had something notarized? What is the notary uh, the public doing? Huh? Stamping, yes, well, he's stamping. I mean, it makes it like, <laughs> in the context, like legality, it makes it more authentic. 
Right, but why, why is it that they want something to be notarized? So uh, we, I think a lot of us don't understand exactly what is happening. The, the, the notary public, the only thing he or she is doing is guaranteeing that the person who signed is the person who should have signed. Yeah. Right? So if you sign a document, it's notarized, then the world, that seal says, yep, you are the one who signed that. Now, that seal doesn't make you you. You were you the moment you signed, right? So the seal just declares that, yes, you are who you're saying you are, even though it doesn't make you that. Um, this is G.I. Williamson, if you didn't know who he was. has a really good study on the Westminster Confession of Faith. He says, he says, a college graduate receives a diploma to which an official seal is affixed. Do you have a diploma from your college? Does it have like a gold thing on it? We have a machine at the seminary that puts gold things on diplomas and we stamp it with a, so it makes little drawings on it. If you ever want one, let me know. No. <laughs> 106 credits and you get one. Uh, the seal of, uh, uh, William says, the seal uh, is of benefit to the recipient, not the giver. The seal does not make the recipient an educated person, however. Right? So just having that doesn't mean that you all... Oh, you're educated. He merely declares officially that the authorities so regard him. The master of Ahasuerus, remember in the book of Esther, where the ring of the king was put on the scroll sent out. And if that was there, then people knew that those were the words of the king. But they were the words of the king even before the seal was there. So the master of Ahasuerus was authentic. Without the seal, it actually was the king's decree. The seal was added to convince the king's subjects that the message really was his. So the sacraments are seals in, in saying that the, that the people who partake of it are gods. Have ever remember Rocky, the movie? Rocky one. Remember where he practices? Heather, do you remember where Rocky, Rocky in the meat lock, uh, locker, right? And there's these sides of beef, and he, which is a lie, right? Because you'll be all frozen, your hands will be all broken if you do that. <laughs> but uh, a lot of times you see those sides of beef, and what do they have on them? A, exactly, a purple, bluish USDA seal saying, yep, it's beef, <laughs> right? Uh, it was, that, was that beef before? We hope so. We're not talking about hot dogs. We're probably talking about, no, size of beef. But now it's declaring to the world that, yes, it is what it says it is. And, this, and the sacraments do that. They seal our identity in Christ, which is the opposite. It's an unfortunate word in the sense that sealing can also be hiding. And it's the opposite of hiding. The sacraments declare to the world who we are in Christ, including the Lord's Supper. And that's why we here require a credible profession of faith in order to partake of the Lord's Supper, because it's declaring that you are in Christ when we partake of that. This is uh, Johannes Voss, the son of Gerhardus Voss. If the names don't mean anything, that's fine. 
Um, but he says the word seal is here used in the sense of pledge or to guarantee or legally to certify. The catechism states that the sacraments are instituted by Christ to seal the benefits of his mediation to those who, that are within the covenant of grace. That is to guarantee or legally to certify these benefits to those persons. This does not mean that baptism and the Lord's Supper of themselves, as mere outward ordinances, can guarantee anything to their recipients. But it means that when the sacraments are rightly used, with true faith in Christ, they function as seals or divinely given certificates of the benefits of Christ's redemption. The person who, with true faith, makes a right use of the sacrament is to regard them as seals of the covenant of grace, as God's guarantee of the fulfillment of all the covenant promises. The sacraments are also telling us that God is going to do what He promised to do for us. So when we take the Lord's Supper, God is saying something. He's saying, I will be faithful to all the promises I made to you in the covenant of grace. Any questions on that before we continue? All right. The question also says that the sacraments are not intended for the world, but for those within the sphere of the covenant of grace. The sacraments are given to the church, not to the world. Paul says in Romans 15, 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the Father. So he became a servant to those who are circumcised, those that receive the sacrament of circumcision, which today we know is accomplished by the circumcision of the heart that's demonstrated by baptism. We see that also in the establishment of the Passover in Exodus 12, 48. So the sacrament is given to the church. Again, that's why we require a credible profession of faith to partake in the Lord's Supper, because not for the unbelievers, not, and it's not for the one who's self-determined either. Um, It wasn't, no, um, I was going to say this. If you came to the Passover, it wasn't enough for you to say, yep, I've been circumcised. You had to prove it. Which, you know, it's a little easier than prove that you're baptized. Um, and if you're a woman, you have to prove that you're in the household of a man who had been circumcised. So it's, it's not just your self-authentication, it is... You have to be authenticated by God. Remember, again, the sacrament is a seal there. Um, and it's not to be used just for everybody in the world. Um, you've heard the name Jonathan Edwards? Right. His grandfather was known as the Pope. The, the, he was really well known in, in New England. He was a pastor in, in um, Northampton, Massachusetts. And... Uh, from our accounts, a great preacher. But he believed that the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance. That you should encourage unbelievers to take the Lord's Supper because that could get them saved. And it may be true that an unbeliever, God is gracious to him in the act of taking the Lord's Supper, the Lord convicts him or her and they come to salvation. But it's despite, in some ways, their, their practice there. And Jonathan Edwards comes along and takes the pulpit of Granddad and preaches against it and eventually gets the boot 
um, from that, but that's kind of what was going on there. The Roman Catholic Church also says a baptism is to be given to anybody indiscriminately because, again, it's a converting ordinance. But the, but the simple act of being baptized converts you to Christ. Nothing to do with your parents, nothing to do with you yourself. And the question that also says that the sacraments are intended to increase the believer's faith in all other graces. That God gives us this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, so that we can grow in Christ. And we can see that that happens. It happens even as we think about it ahead of time. It happens as we're partaking of it. It happens as we meditate upon it afterwards. All that, God uses a means of grace to cause us to grow, to grow in, in Him. We see that in both in Romans and in, in Galatians. And then the question also says that partic- participation in the sacraments involve a pledge of promise of obedience to Christ. As you partake of it, we're pledging to walk in obedience to Christ, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. We see that we see bapti- the reference to baptism that way in Romans 6, and then the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, where Paul says, can you drink the cup of the Lord and of the de- of demons at the same time? No. If you drink a cup of the Lord, if you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're promising to be obedient to Him. And that's what we're doing, too. Every time we, every Sunday, we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're renewing our commitment to Him. It's a, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. We're renewing our commitment to the Lord as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And then, ooh, close to lastly, the sacraments are a bond of unity among Christian people. So not only something between us and God, but a, between us all and, and God. And we see that again in both Ephesians 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then lastly now, the question says that participation in the sacraments is a badge of separation from the world on the part of Christian people. People get converted in the Muslim world. But the, the more fundamentalist Muslims won't necessarily care about that till what happens to you. Till you're baptized. Because now you identified with Christ. Now you've been separated from the world. Now you're set apart for Christ. And the sacraments of that. And the baptism, that's that initial thing. And then the Lord's Supper, every week we're declaring, and God's declaring to us that we are distinguishing ourselves from those that are without, as a question the question says. Again, shows the necessity of a credible profession of faith. It shows the necessity of baptism, the initial separation. It shows the necessity of good standing with the church of Jesus Christ. You see that both in Ephesians 2, where, where the circumcision of the heart separated us from the Gentiles and brought us into the commonwealth of Israel. And in Genesis 34, as an example, this is... Um, which are the two brothers? Um, Dina's two brothers. I don't mean Dina was us. I mean Dina, son of Jacob. Remember the story, right? Shechem kind of rapes her and, uh, and then falls in love, in love with her. And he wants to marry her. And the two brothers say, oh, no, we can't do that because you're, you're outside. You need to be circumcised. The idea here that the sacrament does something 
separates you from everybody else. Now, the brothers use it to kill them. That's not what God had appointed, but it shows the idea. That's what the sacraments are for. So you see that the Lord, in his infinite goodness and mercy, gave us these blessings that we call sacraments, so that we might be ministered by Christ, be brought together as one, and display our being set aside by God for a special purpose. And we should rejoice every time we get to partake of the sacraments, every time we get to partake of the Lord's Supper, every time we get to witness a baptism, because both of them are means that God uses to cause us to grow in Jesus Christ, declare that we are His, to declare that we're not the world's, but that we are His. Any questions? All right, so let's pray then. Father in heaven, thank you for the sacraments that you've given to your church. We thank you that they point us to Christ. We thank you that they seal all the promises of the covenant of grace upon us. We thank you that it separate, they separate us from the world. We thank you that in, it, in them we pledge obedience to you, even on a weekly basis here. We thank you that they are means through which we grow in Christ. We pray that we would tr- treasure, cherish the sacraments. We pray that you prepare us even for this Sunday as, we, uh, as it is our habit. We'll partake of the Lord's Supper that we together might grow into our head. For asking Jesus' name, amen.